Welcome to the Pedra Pearls podcast channel. You are about to hear an audio only version of a recent Pedra webinar, New Developments in Patients with Epidermolysis Bullosa, sponsored by Amrit Pharma. If you would like to view the video version of this webinar, follow the link in the program description. Be sure to subscribe to Pedra Pearls to receive new content as soon as it is posted. You can also visit www.pedraresearch.org forward slash education for more educational programming. Thank you for listening. Hello, and thank you for watching this PEDRA sponsored webinar, New Developments in Patients with Epidermolysis Pelosa, hosted in partnership with Amrit Pharma. An overview of our program, Dr. John Browning will speak first, followed by Dr. Lara Wine-Lee. A moderated session will follow Dr. Wine-Lee's presentation. I'd like to introduce your speakers. Dr. John Browning is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Dermatology at Baylor College of Medicine, Adjunct Faculty at University of Texas, San Antonio, and UIW Medical School. He's also the Chief of Dermatology at Children's Hospital, San Antonio. I'd like to introduce Dr. Lara Wine-Lee. She's Director of Clinical Research in the Department of Dermatology at the Medical University of South Carolina, Associate Residency Program Director, and the Director of Pediatric Dermatology Fellowship. Here's our disclaimer for the evening. Information provided is non-promotional scientific purposes only and contains information on a product and indication that is currently under investigation and have not been approved by the regulatory authorities. The information contained may not be construed as medical advice and is not intended to replace medical advice offered by physicians. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Browning. Well, thank you, um, Jen, and thank you everybody for just this opportunity to get to talk about EB. It's, I think, such a subject so near and dear to all of our hearts as pediatric dermatologists and as investigators, um, hoping to help um, people uh, of all ages um, with this condition. So um, this is just a very, you know, kind of bird's eye view of EB. And, um, you know, I think it's a helpful backdrop as we as we, uh, as we talk about um, this new uh, product um, that Dr. Uh, Winley and myself were both uh, investigators for. Um, but you know, as we all know, EB is a rare, devastating, um, heterogeneous group of genetic disorders, and it can range from you know, people with EB simplex that have a few blisters um, to even none at all um, as they get older to, uh, to those with junctional or dystrophic EB, which you can see these pictures here um, representative of the more severe forms of EB. So um, can really be quite a uh, heterogeneous mix. And um, I think, you know, just the key uh, feature of all uh, types of EB is mechanical fragility of epithelial surfaces, most notably the skin. Of course, that's what we're going to see as dermatologists, but um, we know as well that it can affect um, the esophagus and um, the, the urethra and other um, epithelial surfaces as well. And uh, patients with these disorders experience blistering of the skin in response to minor trauma or friction. So um, what uh, really doesn't affect the vast majority of people can lead to, um, to blistering or uh, shearing of the skin or 
um, erosions very easily in those with EB. Um, EB is quite rare. It's a devastating, again, heterogeneous group of genetic disorders, and there's really no predilection to gender, race, or ethnicity. Um, it is genetic, so depending on the subtype, EB can be inherited in either an autosomal dominant um, or recessive fashion, and it is comprised of a number of subtypes that vary in clinical presentation as well as in incidence and prevalence. And uh, as, we, as we all know, unfortunately, there is no cure for EB, um, and treatment of patients, patients is heavily based on wound care and pain management, um, trying to um, uh, keep them uh, comfortable and minimize uh, comorbidities. Um, in terms of real-world estimates um, or prevalence and incidence of EB, I think this is really a great slide because this comes up all the time. Um, whenever I have a new um, EB family and we're, you know, kind of jumping into uh, the world of EB together, it, it always comes up with uh, the question of, well, how common is this? Um, well, we know that worldwide prevalence of all EB is 30 per million. Um, the worldwide incidence of all cases of EB is 1 in 20,000. And 30% of these cases are junctional EB and dystrophic EB. So these are going to be the more severe cases. Um, this translates into about 14,000 people worldwide living with um, dystrophic or junctional EB. And in the US, that's about 3,000 people um, with uh, dystrophic or junctional EB. So very helpful numbers to be able to share um, as we um, help our patients and help our families understand uh, this condition better. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, there is a range of relative severity, just depending on what the underlying um, genetic uh, abnormality is. And you can see where the different types of EB um, occur in the skin. So with um, EB simplex, you've got um, involvement of the epidermis and with junctional, the uh, lamina lucida, lamina densa layers, and then dystrophic is the sub-lamina densa and Kindler can affect the um, the basal layer, as well as the uh, lamina lucida, lamina densa. Um, and, then, and then in terms of um, characteristics, uh, junctional is the least common, occurring at about 5% uh, of the population. And um, this can be um, often a fatal diagnosis in infancy. Um, it's characterized by extensive blistering, which can occur all over the body. Um, blisters will occur between the upper and lower layers of the skin, and the most problematic wounds can occur on the scalp and lower legs, and these are often characterized by bleeding, which I think can be um, one of the, the biggest problems with junctional EB. Um, there can be dental enamel hypoplasia after the primary teeth have erupted, and these severe complications can become fatal in early life, uh, particularly when you've got um, involvement of the airway with, with bleeding in the airway and, um, and compromise um, of, of the airway. Um, as far as a dystrophic EB, I think as, as pediatric dermatologists, a lot of us really know EB through our dystrophic patients um, because these are the patients that often we see the most of. Um, it's more common than junctional and um, the, the simplex and the, the, uh, the dominant dystrophics often don't even come in um, to clinic, but the um, particularly the recessive dystrophics um, are those patients that we see the most often 
Um, the blistering involves the hands, the feet, the knees, the elbows, really any area that's prone to trauma or pressure. The blisters will heal with scarring. Often there's milia um, around them. And um, most affected people have uh, malformed fingernails and toenails. And so often, you know, you won't even uh, see nails when you're, you're seeing these patients. Um, and uh, they can be lost completely. Uh, in, in really mild cases, sometimes the abnormal nails are the only thing that you'll notice. So if it's a dominant dystrophic EB patient, for instance, they may just have uh, absent nails. Um, EB simplex can be um, much more severe during the neonatal and inf infantile periods. Um, and then often uh, it improves with time. Um, this type of EB is localized most often to the hands and feet, although you can have generalized uh, forms as well, and um, relatively mild extracutaneous involvement. Um, onset of disease activity in EBS is usually at or shortly after birth, although there are many cases of patients with EBS who have presented um, with school sports or uh, competitive sports getting blisters more easily um, than their friends, um, as well as those uh, entering the military who uh, get blisters more more easily with with marching and um, and heavy activity. Um, Kindler is is very rare. Um, we're not even sure really what the frequency is, um, and it's difficult to diagnose. Um, these uh, kids often present with blisters um, early on in life and looks like uh, like other cases of EV, but over time they'll develop photosensitivity, which can show up with uh, poikiloderma. Um, lentigines, you can get atrophic scarring um, and nail dystrophy, and it can really mimic uh, junctional EB, but with, with uh, photosensitivity. And you can, again, you can see it's quite rare. Um, compared to the other types, EB simplex is the most common type, 75% of all cases, and then dystrophic and junctional make up 25% of cases. So um, let's take a little closer look at junctional EB. And we talked about the, uh, some of the features earlier, but you can see um, these widespread wounds that can occur in infancy with um, blistering occurring with uh, minimal trauma. Um, you can see the complete nail loss in inter intermediate um, junctional EB, the hypergranulation in intermediate uh, junctional EB. Uh, this is often characterized by bleeding and um, that can, as I mentioned earlier, that can, can really be a problem. Um, the enamel hypoplasia, which occurs, and then um, alopecia can occur as well um, in intermediate junctional EB. Um, and then looking at just the dystrophic uh, form of EB, um, the wounds and scarring are common in, in both dominant and recessive dystrophic forms. Um, often you'll see some milia um, next to the scars, there's nail dystrophy that can occur um, often with complete loss of the nails, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and then squamous cell carcinoma can occur um, in sites of, of chronic um, scar and chronic, um, chronic damage where you have uh, repeat um, blisters and then healing and chronic wounds and, and scarring occur. Um, those are the areas where squamous cell carcinoma can occur. And I think that that's you know, really one of the greatest fears that our dystrophic patients have and their families have is, is when is this going to happen? Um, because we know it's, it's, it's 
it's only a matter of time. So um, it's very important to, to be aware of that. Um, the pseudosyndactyly and severe RDEB um, can occur from that chronic scarring um, and can lead to the mitten deformity, which can be a, a, a very big problem, um, especially as people get older. And so it, it is important to make sure that the, uh, that the younger children and the babies are, are individually wrapping their fingers so that they can help um, minimize this uh, comorbidity. Um, you can see extensive blistering uh, in these pictures and these wounds leading to scarring and joint contractures, um, which uh, can be uh, disabling. And um, you can have you know, mild or, or more severe contractures, um, depending on how severe the underlying um, EB is. So um, how do we make the diagnosis? Well, you know, it it's, starts out as a clinical diagnosis. Um, we suspect it when we see um, a patient with blisters. Um, often when we're called into the neonatal ICU, that's um, the ideal time to make the diagnosis if you are, do have that ability to, to do that. Um, but of course, sometimes we encounter patients who never were quite uh, diagnosed accurately, and, and we see them later and in, in, in suspected, but um, you're looking for skin blistering, superficial or profound, generalized, localized. Again, just depending on the subtype, it, it's very um, varied in terms of how it can look. Um, nail fragility, very common. And then contractures, strictures, dental involvement in certain subtypes. Um, and other organ involvement, particularly in RDEB. Um, laboratory analysis would really be how you would confirm that diagnosis or confirm that clinical suspicion and um, routine um, biopsy really has um, no utility, but doing um, immunohistochemistry is very helpful with the fluorescent labeled um, antibodies. So this is where you can look for the presence or absence of certain skin proteins. You can also um, do uh, electron microscopy to look at the uh, ultrastructures. Um, of course, both of these techniques really are dependent upon um, who is uh, who is looking at the, uh, the uh, fluorescent antibodies and then who's looking at your electron microscopy. So there is um, significant skill involved with both of those interpretations, um, but you'll, you will get rapid diagnostic turnaround, um, unlike with genetic testing, which can, can, um, can be difficult to do, it can be expensive and it's really dependent on available resources and it may take a while to get it back. Um, personally, I found genetic testing to be helpful when I can correlate it with my clinical and, um, and uh, immunohistochemistry diagnosis. So that's when it's most helpful. Otherwise, um, if you're just doing genetic testing but you don't have something else to, um, to correlate with, it, it, can be, it can be difficult. You might, may find some red herrings in terms of what um, the underlying um, gene abnormalities uh, are, that are, that are that are discovered. So um, with no cure for EB, wound management is fundamental priority for patients. Um, this is to help keep them comfortable, to minimize um, infection, to prevent um, worsening of their disease. So uh, relevant factors would be knowing the subtype of the disease, knowing you know, what's, what's to be expected in the future. Will there be improvement? Will there be worsening? Um, what's the age of the patient? Is this, is this a, a baby? Is this an older patient? Um, what's their nutritional status? 
Do they have um, iron deficiency? Do they have zinc deficiency? Um, these can really uh, uh, lead to, uh, to problems with wound healing. Um, what's their general state of health? What's their nutrition? Are they taking nutrition by mouth? Do they have a G-tube? Um, you know, what are they doing to, to, to take care of themselves? Are they seeing, hopefully, a pediatrician or an internist who um, understands how to manage EB and can be part of your team? Um, what's the availability of wound dressing? Do, do you have uh, nonstick dressings available for them? How often can they get them? Or are they having to just use, um, you know, Vaseline and gauze? What, you know, what are they, what are they able to do? Are they, are they using dressings at all? Um, and then what's the optional involvement of nursing care at home? And, you know, again, just depending on the state they live in and their underlying um, health insurance. And, and unfortunately, often whether there's presence of a, of a, a tracheostomy or a G-tube may really determine whether there's nursing care available. Um, what's the domestic environment like? Is it, is it a clean home? Is it a safe home where they can stay? Are they, you know, are they getting the care that they need? Um, with wound management, there's really no standard of care, and all you need to do is go pull um, uh, a room full of EB families, and you'll find that the way that they treat wounds is, is all over the board, and what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for someone else. Um, wound dressings are changed about every other day or every three days at most. Um, adherent wound dressings are soaked with lukewarm water. This is often the most traumatic uh, part of having EB for these patients. It can be very painful, very difficult, very, very time consuming. And then creams or ointments are administered on the wounds and that can tend to adhere to the wound dressings, which can, again, make it difficult to, um, to remove if they're also adherent to the underlying skin. Um, use of topical emollients, including moisturizers for skin care is definitely recommended so that this can help um, reduce the um, sticking to the to the wounds of the dressings. Um, equal parts of liquid paraffin and white soft paraffin are um, also used for peri wound skin care. And overall, greasy ointments like Vaseline or Aquaphor are used most frequently and can be helpful for the management of paritis. And a patient caregiver survey revealed substantial EB burden and unmet needs, which found a wound burden to be a big problem. 32% of patients, 36% of caregivers stated that over 30% of the patient's body area was covered by wounds, and this can um, lead to pain. It can lead to prolonged uh, wound care uh, dressing changes. Um, it can also lead to bleeding and, and sticking to the bed sheets. Um, infections are a major problem. 75% of patients and 55% of caregivers reported that they changed the dressing on the same infected wound one to three times a day. Um, that would be for those, those difficult chronic wounds that have um, purulence um, or, uh, or other types of drainage. And then with quality of life, um, patients and caregivers reported that EB negatively impacts their daily activities socialization, emotional well-being, and personal finances. So it just can impact many, many areas of life. Um, survey respondents identified most important factors for future treatments would be to reduce the number and severity of wounds, to decrease pain, and to reduce the risk of skin cancer. So for patients living with EB, uh, larger wounds are associated with worse disease severity and quality of life, as well as anemia, osteoporosis, squamous cell, skin cancer, 
and increased use of pain medication. So being able to um, allow chronic larger wounds to heal um, quickly and easily is, um, is, a, is a key target for, um, for these patients. So on that note, I'm gonna turn this over to, uh, to Dr. Weinley and I'll be available at the end for, for questions as well. Excellent, thank you very much. Uh, can everybody I think can hear me? Um, and excellent, and now I have control. So uh, I am here today, I'm gonna actually talk um, first about uh, the, the product um, that was tested in the trial whose data we'll be looking at today. And it's really a very interesting formulation. Um, so um, this uh, product, this oleogel, it is a derivative of birch bark that has multiple active ingredients. So, um, and these ingredients are in a sunflower oil base. When um, we look at the data, the placebo in the trial is the sunflower oil. So um, the, that's sort of interesting when we look at some of the data in the, the future that um, that's a, may have some kind of activity as well. But it's really interesting because the gel, um, it is a emulsifier, it is, gets a kind of this very easy spreading and then thickens up after you've applied it so that it forms a barrier in addition to having the active ingredients. Um, this is actually a picture of the product here. So you'll see um, it's a single use tube. It is a sterile product. So they use this during the dressing change and it's a one-time use tube. And so each change they would go to the number of tubes that they need. Um, so there we go. And these, um, this birch uh, bark extract has a good bit of data, um, not just in EB, but really in the whole field of wound healing, where it's been looked at both in vitro and in vivo um, at the different stages of wound healing. And so I think this here is a really, really important look. At the top of the slide, you'll see the different stages that we're all familiar with in wound healing. So the immediate inflammatory phase, the um, new tissue formation, so the cell migration, the changes in the cytoskeletal network, and then over weeks, the formation of the epidermal barrier. And at the bottom, um, we're highlighting some of the factors that um, the uh, birch product is supposed to do that has been shown in these some of these studies um, to work at actually each stages of this wound healing cascade. So in the beginning, in this immediate inflammatory phase, there is an upregulation of some of the inflammatory meteors that are pro-healing. Um, uh, and then the new tissue formation. So there is actually um, effects of the product on the keratinocyte uh, skeleton, cytoskeleton, as well as the migration properties. And then long-term, there does seem to be an enhancement of keratinocyte differentiation um, through some defined pathways. Um, so really for, for those um, scientists out there, I think this is a very fascinating um, kind of cascade with a lot of different effects that there's some great references here on the bottom that you can really get into understanding what is happening. So let's look um, more specifically at the data. So this was a phase three placebo-controlled study looking at efficacy of safety and safety in EB. I'm going backwards. 
Okay. Uh, and this is the study design here. So in the screening and enrollment period, so first of all, I wanna just note the number of enrolled patients was 223, making it a very large study for our rare disease. And the stratification, it was a one-to-one -one randomization between the um, placebo and the active product. And the stratification was done um, by uh, the subtype of EB as well as the wound size. So trying to get matched populations across the two. The active phase here, the double blind was 90 days with a primary endpoint of the proportion of patients that um, had complete closure of a target wound. So the next slide, we'll look at a little bit about selection, but the primary endpoint was a, a selected wound by the investigator. And that was assessed at 45 days. Um, the patients at this point after the 90 days um, double blind phase had the option to enter the open label extension and you can see um, 205 patients did enter that phase. So the demographics were very similar uh, between the placebo, the control gel and the oleogel. Um, and I think there's a, a number of important things um, on this slide to note. So once over 70% of the patients um, were in the pediatric population, so obviously of high interest to us here, um, but the characteristics amongst um, the groups of the control and the active product were very similar. The majority of patients uh, did have recessive dystrophic EB with really a much smaller number of dominant dystrophic and junctional EB patients. There's a, just a further look here, um, looking at the you know, potentially a surrogate for nutritional status, but also again, fairly well matched um, by looking at the BMI groups and the different patients. And then on the bottom, what's important to note um, is a little bit about these wounds. And the wounds that were selected were, as shown on the previous slide, they were of a certain size, so 10 square centimeters to 50 square centimeters. And they had to have been present for at least 21 days, but not more than nine months. And uh, amongst the, the, the group here, you can see fairly well matched with the average um, wound ages within the 30 day mark for both our placebo and our active product. And to give you a little bit more idea of what was assessed in this study. Um, so this is just examples of different wounds. So you see the wound stratifications by size. And again, remember the randomization was done by wound size as well. Um, and the baseline wounds, which were measured uh, with this method using a camera system that traces out the wounds, the investigator traces out the wounds. And you really get a very, very excellent um, measurement of the size of the wound that you can follow throughout the study. And then here, looking at what the primary endpoint looked like. So this was complete closure of the target wounds. So the formal measurements being done on the selected target wound that was then followed throughout the course of the study. So um, the news here is that the primary endpoint was met um, looking at that 45 days of the active product versus the control gel. Um, the patients in both groups had improvement in um, or had wound closure um, as shown in the percentages here. So 41% in the active group and then 29% um, in the control group. And the, so this was uh, demonstrating a significant improvement with uh, the or higher number of wound closure with the, the active product. Here we stratify a little bit more about the target wounds, so the primary endpoint at this 45 days by subtype. 
And really, you think the important thing to note is that the vast majority of patients in the study were the recessive dystrophic patients. And so therefore you can see um, most of the, um, the data is gonna fall within this first box here with our patients, again, showing those similar results with um, a higher percentage of patients reaching the primary endpoint at 45 days. Um, that result was not, uh, not seen in the smaller groups. There's a little bit of a mismatch here in the dystrophic patients, again, a very small group Group and, and not as well matched um, as well as another small group in our junctional patients. But going back to the initial slides, I think it's important to note that this is not um, thought to, to work by genotype as it is a wound healing product. Um, and we can you know, add that to something to think about in our discussion. So despite the, the prior slide showing by subtype, the primary endpoint was stronger in those recessive dystrophic patients, this here was looking at time to complete closure. Um, so looking at the mean number of days from um, the baseline uh, measurement to what was determined to be complete closure of the wound. And across subtypes, although not necessarily significant all the types, but you can see that the complete closure did occur uh, sooner in um, those patients that were on active product. And this just takes out the data and says, okay, so after the 45 days, so the whole study period being that 90 days, um, was this, uh, you know, what was happening with the wounds? Um, so it's important to note though, that uh, after a wound was closed, no further measurements were necessarily done, but that the improvement that was noted um, in the, the target wound size um, for these wounds did it maintain throughout the 90 days. So any improvements were maintained throughout the course of the study. And then as secondary endpoints, um, so the product, uh, the active or the placebo product, while the, the target wound that was selected by the investigator was the one that was measured, the product was actually applied to all the open wounds. And there was not an upper limit in the number of wounds or the size of the wounds that they could be applied to. And so the secondary measures were looking more at the total body um, wound surface, the body surface area. Um, and then we'll look later, um, look here at the EBDASI as well. This wasn't as assessed as frequently in the study, but here at 30, 60 and 90 days. that you can see um, with the oleogel that there were improvements greater than the control gel for both your um, your EB disease activity and your body surface area percentages. Um, and that's you know, the, the product listed here in blue. And again, these were noted about 30 days and were maintained um, with a continued improvement up to um, the end of the study here at 90 days. And then another really, really critical critical um, secondary endpoint that was looked at um, in this study. And also emphasizing again that over 70% of the patients were pediatric patients, um, was looking at the procedural pain. So this was the pain that was associated with their standard dressing changes. Um, so pain was assessed um, throughout the study. And if you, you know, see again here in blue, the active product, um, 
that there was a reported improvement in dressing change related pain um, based on this visual analog scale um, in great patients assessed greater than four years old uh, to actually use the scale. Um, just of note that the characteristics of pain were very similar. You can see at the top, very similar amount of pain that was reported in the placebo group versus um, the, uh, the active group. And again, those effects were maintained throughout the, the course of the, of the trial. Another really important um, endpoint or important symptom that we all um, really, really struggle with uh, in the care of our EB patients is the itch associated with it. And so here um, is really kind of detailed information looking at different um, aspects of the scale of itch, so kind of different domains of itch. And uh, the active medication versus the control gel um, in four of the six domains noted here, um, you can look at the duration, the severity, the, the frequency and the distress associated with itch. Uh, and this is uh, done in patients 14 and up, but you can see that there were improvements noted in itch um, in four of these six domains. In our younger patients, so in our patients between four and 13 years of age, um, both the, the control gel and the active gel did have improvements as itch, um, with the control gel being slightly favored, um, but these results uh, did not reach um, significance. It was more of a trend that was seen. And so, you know, very important um, here to look at the safety of this topical product. So the most frequently reported AEs um, were um, actually, you know, quite similar across the groups. So as we all know, in caring for these patients, they have a very high rate of complications uh, with you know, all of their treatment. And this bore out in the trial. So about 80% of the patients reported some adverse event. Um, the adverse events were rather similar between the active and the control um, gel. There was a slightly higher um, of these uh, rated grade two uh, AEs um, in the control gel. Um, and the severe one favors slightly um, the active gel. Uh, it, this looks like it was mostly due to some um, episodes of anemia, but very similar uh, rates of um, the AE leading to study withdrawal, but it was a very low number. So low number of patients overall, only five patients in the whole study um, withdrew from the study due to their AEs. And you can see at the top, just to kind of point out here, the numbers. So the anemia was slightly higher in the oleogel. I'm not sure that there's a specific explanation for that, um, but the 7.3% versus 3.5%, but the other one's very similar um, across the two. What was interesting and also very important um, for all of us who care for EB was the infection rate. So overall, actually very, I, you know, I thought this to be a very, very low infection rate. Um, if you're looking at the percentages of infections that were reported within the 90 days, um, this is such a frequent occurrence um, in our patients with EB. Uh, so the severity also was um, relatively mild. There weren't actually any infections that um, were deemed as um, life-threatening and only one severe infection in the control group. Um, but again, slightly higher number of infections of the moderate category in the control gel. 
And then um, looking also at a very low rate of serious adverse events, um, although a slightly higher number of serious um, events leading to study withdrawal in the oleogel group, one of these were, uh, was actually thought to be related to the product. Um, but again, a low number showing you know, across the study, just in general, low, low side effects um, in, for the product. So in summary, um, and you know, I hope that this has really brought up some interesting questions and I'm looking forward to a, a great discussion. Um, this trial was uh, the largest uh, prospective um, controlled trial in the EB population looking at our severe patients with dystrophic EB and junctional EB. Uh, the product did meet its endpoint of wound closure at 45 days versus the control gel. The, um, this was most pronounced in the recessive dystrophic patients, which made up the vast majority of the patients um, in this study. Um, overall, the reduction in the total wound size, so even prior to closure, um, wound size reduction was close to 60% as early as day 14. Uh, and that's a, a nice number to think about. Um, the total wound burden also decreased over time and that patients um, using the product were uh, reported to have a greater reduction in pain associated with their dressing changes. Um, overall, very well tolerated with a low number of serious adverse events and adverse events that were in line uh, with the control product and very few that led to withdrawal from the study. Um, and so uh, with that, I, I'm happy to open up discussion about um, the oleogel and this potentially very, very important advancements for our patients with EB. Thank you so much for that. Both of those excellent talks. Um, let's see if I can get Dr. Browning back on here. Um, let's see. So while we wait for some questions to come in, uh, there was a lot of really fantastic, really meaty science in that presentation, Dr. Winely. And I'm wondering if you can distill that sort of and give a message to our patients and caregivers, like what does this study mean for them exactly? Well, um, I think there's sort of a number of highlights in this study for me. Uh, one is that um, this is potentially a wound healing product with applicability um, in EB uh, that can be incorporated into their regular bandage routine. I'm not sure that I highlighted that enough in the presentation, but this was um, not something that they were required to change their wound care routine, as long as they did uh, do their wound dressings at least every four days, which most of the patients, there's like just a huge variability. And so a lot of times, um, that you, you know, you test something and you change the way the patient does it, and that's very inconvenient for them. So and it's very difficult. And actually, Dr. Browning and I were talking about this beforehand. Um, it's much better uh, when you feel like you can incorporate what, what they've already found work for them. So I think that's sort of number one. It's a product that can be incorporated in their other care um, that is ongoing. Um, and number two, you know, it really does represent some advancements um, that can aid in the wound healing 
healing with both important to highlight the wound closure. So again, reducing that wound burden that came out from the survey as such an important part of the perception and the experience of living with EB, um, as well as, as that pain aspect. Um, to me, that was just a very important part. You know, again, like Dr. Browning highlighted one of the most difficult parts is that there very um, critical wound healing um, products. Oh, Mike just joined us. Um, you know, their, their wound dressings and all that is also one of the most anxiety provoking parts of their care. And so to potentially be able to add something that was useful, um, I think is, is a really important advancement. I agree. I mean, this is really exciting. Um, one thing that just sort of stuck out to me was when the, you were talking about when the gel is applied, it sort of goes on nice and, and smoothly and then thickens over time as it's on the skin. And like, does that, is that something that aids in the um, like reduction of pain? So I, I'm not sure I can answer that. Um, and I, I probably perseverated on that because I found it to be so interesting mm -hmm. as well. Me too. Um, yeah, it, it's really interesting. And, you know, I, I looked a lot into it and trying to understand how it works, but it's a gel. And then when you go to apply it, it, it liquefies and kind of spreads easier and then goes back to the gel. If I'm in my very simplistic view of the, um, the science behind that. And I think that's important because then it has the ability to act as a barrier. Mm. Um, and so in the study, I mean, there's no, were no other products that were applied to the wounds. Um, so if they had been applying another barrier like Vaseline or some other emollient, um, then, uh, always the concern then is that you're going to add something that dim diminishes another part of their routine that can be very effective. But the fact that it, it has that property to kind of act as a gel and act as a barrier, I think is a very, very important part um, of using it. Dr. Browning, any comments here? Um, yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think that this, you know, really product can give people hope about being able to allow those chronic wounds to heal faster and to um, to give them comfort. Um, I do think one of one of the questions was, you know, how frequently would they need to apply it? And, and I think, you know, the, the beauty is, um, is they can do it when they want to do it and part of their normal routine. It was not studied as a preventative um, for blisters, although um, certainly could be used as uh, as you might use any type of um, uh, you know, wound, wound care product, or I'm sure many people will want to use it as a, um, uh, preventative, you know, because it does sort of double act as, as the barrier. And then there was another question that had come up about is the product being um, studied outside of EB as well? Um, and does sunflower oil have its own potential wound healing properties? Um, and can you use it on its own? So, um, I do not know if it's being studied outside of EB. As far as I know, it is not, at least through AMRIT, but I will defer to others regarding that. And then with sunflower oil, um, many of us who see kids have recommended sunflower oil for years as an emollient. Um, it has been studied before. There are good papers on it that you can pull about using it just as an emollient. And um, often when people uh, kind of balk at using petrolatum or um, Vaseline, um, which is, you know, a, a, a petroleum derivative, petrolatum derivative, um, 
and they want, you know, kind of that natural product. I'll often mention sunflower oil as a potential that they can use. And I, I found that it, I found it to be better than, um, than coconut oil and certainly a lot less irritating than olive oil. Um, so I do think you can, you can use it on its own and you may want to pull some of those old papers. Um, in fact, I think Larry Eichenfield might've even, his name might be on some of those uh, papers um, from about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. My patients always tell me that sunflower oil is one of the things also that's highlighted in their, um, you know, their, their chat rooms and is, is a product a lot of people like. Um, getting back to the question about uh, marketed outside of EB. Um, so there, there's a, a nice publication, which is um, referenced in one of the slides that was from, um, that was done in 2019 in dermatologic therapy, um, talking about you know, some of the prior um, investigations, uh, some of the in vivo type of stuff that has been done with this. Um, I believe that it is marketed already in Europe for just as a general wound healing product. Um, and uh, so there were a number of phase two and phase three studies in general wound healing. So really um, you know, prior to kind of even the EB um, investigation as I understand it. Excellent. Um, feel free to ask those questions, folks. Keep them coming. Um, so I know the study, what, the endpoint primarily was 45 days, and then you were monitoring patients at 90 days. What about beyond 90 days? How, what, did, how, what were patients reporting beyond 90 days? So we don't uh, have that data released yet, okay. um, at least that I'm aware of, uh, but if you, um, there was that open label extension with which a good number of patients did enter um, that was uh, 24 months in length. So I'm sure we will, you know, get some of that information uh, long-term. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any word on anticipated cost yet? I don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's see. Another question has come in um, with EB it can be difficult to recruit. Um, so well done on your enrollment. That was quite a large enrollment. That's really exciting. Um, any tips for researchers in making trials accessible for or other recommendations? We get this question a lot. Like, how do we enroll patients? How do we get access for our patients? Any, any advice there? Um, well, I, I'll speak to that since we were talking about that. Um, actually, Dr. Winley and I were talking about that right before we started. And um, I think that it is very difficult to recruit for EB studies. And you kind of have to um, choose your studies wisely because you don't want to, you want to hopefully recruit for a, a, a good study. And it can be difficult if you have subjects that go into one study and have a bad experience and they're not going to want to be part of another another study. So of course that can be hard to know, you know, sometimes you don't know up up front, you know, how how a product's going to be and whether it's going to be something that they like. Um, but you should, you know, think about that. Does this look like something really promising? Um, and then I have found it easier to recruit from you know, kind of a larger geographic area than where, um, than where I just have clinic. And so um, you can have, um, uh, you can get the sponsor often to help pay for transportation. So that's something that you just have to ask about 
is finding out, you know, how those patients that may live one state away, how they can travel to your site um, and then making that, that happen. Um, and then word of mouth, you know, especially in EB, it's such a, it's such a small um, tight knit community. And so if somebody finds out about a study and they're, you know, if it's a happy patient or happy subject, um, you know, you can always encourage them to, uh, they can't really talk a whole lot about, about the product um, because it's under investigation, but, you know, they, they can mention that they're in a study and that, that other people may want to call your site to be in the study. The other thing that I could add, um, you know, particularly with the rare disease trials is, uh, is partnering with the patient organizations. And so I think some of the rare disease trials that we've been most successful with um, have uh, had a lot of those referrals because of support of those organizations. Um, this can, it can be really great. Uh, but yeah, these trials, you need to really really recruit broadly and need to have the support to do so. Absolutely, I'm so glad that you brought up partnering with the patient organizations because they are very strong and they have the access to the patients, but they also have the, just the daily understanding of just how awful this is, this situation is. Um, I, I had a question that I wanted to come back to um, while I think of it for a second here. So um, Dr. Winley, could you just remind us how many patients were enrolled that were from the US? So I do not have that okay. um, information. So okay. I That's don't all right. have access to that. Yeah. So um, as physicians and working in clinic, I mean, this is just listening to these talks, this sounds like pretty groundbreaking options. So as physicians in clinic, like. I heard Dr. Browning say this gives patients hope. Like, how does it make you feel, you know, going into the clinic knowing that this could get approved and this could be really impactful for your patients? You know, it's amazing just to finally actually have something that's that could be um, approved to treat EB because right now there's nothing. So, you know, and 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 while this is a topical wound care product, it's not targeting the underlying genetic abnormalities, which we all hope to see at some point in our careers, um, it's still important. And just like um, in the world of atopic dermatitis, we, um, we can treat the inflammation now with, with new systemic options, but we're still needing to treat the underlying um, skin uh, barrier abnormality with, with emollients and topicals. So it's exciting to have this, this product in the EV space. I think that it's been so important um, for the families to actually know that there's an interest. Um, I think that has been really, really remarkable just to, to see that there are people that are, are approaching it. So, um, you know, whether it's, like you said, some new advances, some research advances um, versus some of the pharmaceutical, it, it, it's really uh, been very exciting. Um, but it's a tool and it's nice to always get new tools. Um, I also, you know, like that we're looking at something that necessarily not is, is not necessarily genotype specific. Um, and of note, not all of the patients in the study were genotyped, but it's, um, it's truly a wound healing um, mechanism applied to this disease that's so important to us. So um, for your comment, Dr. Browning, how do we go from this wound treatment to actually treating or the underlying cause of this disease? Like where, 
where is the research need to be right now to get from this point to really the end game? Well, I think, you know, one way is just making sure that our, you know, patients are, are comfortable to have improved quality of life and they're living longer mm-hmm. so that there'll be an opportunity to potentially um, treat the underlying um, genetic problem. So, I mean, just improving their quality of life and overall health with a product that's effective is, is really part of that. Um, and, you know, this, this is just a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a wound care product. It helps wounds heal. Uh, certainly chronic wounds were studied in this trial. And so it helps those to heal faster. Um, but it just, you know, it just opens that door to continue looking and continue investigating to, um, to really start targeting the underlying genetic abnormalities. I think something um, that I didn't really focus on uh, due to time, but you know, this was actually done down to a very young age. So um, this was used in infants as well. And I think that's very exciting um, because to have some safety and efficacy data in our youngest age group, I really haven't, we don't have that um, in you know, many things that we do in pediatric dermatology. Yeah, absolutely. That's really important. Um, oh, this is a good question. How many tubes to use with wounds and is there a limit? So there was not a limit. Uh, and so that's kind of important to think about too, because many times when we test a topical product, there's a minimum BSA and there's a maximum BSA. Uh, and so when you're then broadening the idea of safety, you know, with a potential for something like absorption, then you, you may be exceeding what was actually tested. So this was applied to all active wounds. Um, although again, the target wound being the primary endpoint that we focus mostly on. Um, and the, there was not then a limit in the number of products. There were specific instructions and it was demonstrated to the patients about the application technique with how thick it should be uh, as a standard. And they used the amount of product that they needed then to cover the wounds to those specifications. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time. This has been a very exciting webinar with lots of very exciting information. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Dr. John Browning and Dr. Lara Winely for those magnificent presentations. Thank you to Amrit Pharma for sponsoring this webinar. For other webinars, please visit us at www.peterresearch.org forward slash education. If you have questions or would like to be connected with our speakers, please email me at info at Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and LinkedIn. And you can also subscribe to our Pedra Pearls podcast, available in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.